Hello, um, my name's Michael Wood. Uh, I was for 35 years a legal advisor in the British Foreign Office, and during that time I had quite a lot to do with the UN Security Council. Uh, I was for three years at the UK Mission in New York from 1991 to 94, and during that time I spent most of my uh, life, it seemed, uh, in the Security Council. So I do have a particular interest in the subject of this talk, which is the interpretation of Security Council resolutions. In fact, what I want to do in this talk is to revisit that question. Um, I say revisit because I wrote an article on the subject some 10 or 11 years ago. It was entitled, it had the same title, and it was published in Volume 2 of the Max Planck Yearbook of United Nations Law. Um, I won't repeat everything I said in that article, which was quite detailed, but anyone who's interested uh, can download it free of charge from the uh, website of the Max Planck Yearbook. So what I plan to do is as follows. First, I shall say a few words about the general importance of interpretation in international law. I shall also consider whether there's any general theory of interpretation in the law. Second, I shall recall what I said previously as the proper approach to the interpretation of Security Council resolutions, which I'll refer to for short as SCRs. I'll then consider some of the developments over the last 10 years, and my conclusion will be largely to reaffirm the approach that I suggested in the 1998 article. Security Council resolutions play an ever more important role in today's world. They impinge directly upon central issues of foreign affairs, on important interests of states, and on the lives of individuals, businessmen affected by sanctions, alleged war criminals, or the victims of humanitarian crises. And as a result, increasing attention is being paid to the many important legal and political questions surrounding the Security Council. Questions of legality and legitimacy are frequently raised, not least by academics. The important questions include matters such as the scope of the powers of the Council, in particular its powers to adopt binding legal decisions, the meaning of threats to the peace in Article 39, the quasi-judicial and even legislative role that some believe the Council has arrogated to itself, possible limits on the powers of the Council, the hierarchy between Council decisions and other rules of international law, including the effect of Article 103 of the Charter, to which I shall come, and Jus Kogan's, and the justiciability of Council decisions. All of these issues are in one sense related to the question of interpretation, but I don't intend to deal, at any rate directly, with them today. Instead, what I see myself as doing is a more technical matter, identifying the methods and rules for the interpretation of Security Council resolutions. Firstly, does that matter? 
Well, one author, Michael Byers from Canada, recently wrote that the future shape of the international legal system will depend, above all, on how we interpret Security Council resolutions. You may think that's something of an exaggeration. But it is the case that questions of interpretation of Security Council resolutions arise increasingly frequently and seem to be increasingly important. You only have to think of the controversy over the legality of the use of force against Iraq in March 2003, which turned almost entirely on the meaning of Resolution 1441 of the Council. Or you can think of the current advisory proceedings in the International Court of Justice concerning Kosovo's Declaration of Independence, where the meaning and effect of Resolution uh, 1244 is likely to be an issue. These are high-profile examples, but nowadays international lawyers and others, including domestic courts in many jurisdictions, routinely have to interpret and apply SCRs as part of their day-to-day -day work, for example, when applying the very many sanctions regimes. More generally, I'd like to point to the importance of interpretation for practicing international lawyers. A great deal of our time is, in, is spent in interpreting the provisions of treaties, the terms of diplomatic correspondence, the texts of declarations, statements by governments and resolutions. Sometimes we do so consciously, particularly when a provision is obscure or if the matter comes to a court. More often, we're hardly conscious of the process of interpretation. The question sometimes asked if there are any generally applicable principles or rules of interpretation in international law. I do not think that there are, beyond perhaps the very general proposition that interpretation must be carried out in good faith. Quite what that implies in a particular case would be an interesting question for study. I would like to think that, at a minimum, it requires the interpreter to approach the task honestly and not to distort his or her interpretation to reach a predetermined result. But some may think that is a counsel of perfection. What is clear is that the rules for the interpretation of treaties in the Vienna Conventions on the Law of Treaties cannot be applied directly across the board to all instruments of international law, though they may often be drawn on by analogy. Even within the field of treaties, it's sometimes suggested that special rules of interpretation should apply to different categories, such as the constituent instruments of international organizations or human rights treaties. Instruments where different approaches to interpretation may be appropriate include declarations accepting the compulsory jurisdiction of the International Court, as the International Court itself explained in the Fisheries case between Spain and Canada, the interpretation of other unilateral acts, a matter considered recently by the International Law Commission, the interpretation of judicial 
arbitral and other third-party decisions, the interpretation of the internal law of international organizations, such as their rules of procedure, staff regulations and rules, financial regulations, etc., and of course the interpretation of resolutions adopted by the various organs of international organizations. In this last category there are great variations. You can hardly compare the way in which the secondary legislation of the European community is interpreted by the Court of Justice in Luxembourg to the approach of the International Court to resolutions of the Assembly or the Security Council. The International Law Commission, in its 2006 Guiding Principles applicable to unilateral declarations, said that in case of doubt, the obligations resulting from a unilateral declaration, and I quote, must be interpreted in a restrictive manner. Weight shall be given first and foremost to the text of the declaration, together with the context and the circumstances in which it was formulated. You will see that this approach is very different from that set out in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. So a first conclusion, I suggest, is that there is nothing to be gained by seeking to place the interpretation of Security Council resolutions within the context of some general theory of interpretation. Indeed, it may not even be appropriate to look for a single set of rules to interpret all Security Council resolutions. Such resolutions are varied, increasingly varied. They range from the purely political, such as the condemnation of a particular terrorist attack, or a rather solemn declaration on a thematic issue, to the highly operational, such as a resolution authorizing the use of force, all necessary means in the language of the Council, or dealing with the mandates of peacekeeping operations, or imposing economic or other sanctions in particular situations. And they range through to things that look very like treaties, such as the statutes of the ad hoc criminal tribunals. So it may be that any general approach to the interpretation of SCRs has to give way in particular circumstances to other approaches. For example, in a decision of November 2001 in the Milosevic case, the trial chamber of the Yugoslav Tribunal affirmed that the statute of the International Tribunal is interpreted as a treaty. That may be correct in the context because the statute is a very unusual kind of provision to find in a Security Council resolution. The English Privy Council, in a celebrated opinion from the 1930s, in the case of in re-piracy jury gentium, said, and I quote, a little common sense is a valuable quality in the interpretation of international law. That surely includes the interpretation of Security Council resolutions. But at least when matters come under the scrutiny of a court, or, for example, before a detailed public or other inquiry, common sense is not the end of the story. Something more rigorous is needed 
if the process is to be convincing. In the United Kingdom, the highest legal advisor to the government, including on questions of international law, is the Attorney General. Many years ago, the Foreign Office asked the Attorney General for advice on a relatively minor matter involving the interpretation of a sanctions resolution. Instead of the advice, we received a short letter saying that the Attorney General be grateful for a statement of the rules applicable to the interpretation of Security Council resolutions. I must confess I had never consciously thought of that question until that point, despite having spent years drafting, interpreting and applying them. And the result of that one-sentence inquiry was the article that I referred to at the beginning of the talk. I noted at that time that there were very few authorities on the subject. That's no longer the case. To deal with the matter thoroughly, nowadays, it would be necessary to examine a good deal of recent case law, both in international and national courts, and a certain amount of writing, and also to consider the arguments used by states and commentators in relation to some particular cases. For example, the extended debate over the interpretation of Resolution 1441, which was central to the question of the legality of the 2003 Iraq conflict. I do not have time to do this thoroughly, but I would recommend it as a subject for research. In my 1998 article, I stressed two things in particular. First, the need to understand the role of the Security Council under the Charter, as well as its working methods and the way SCRs are drafted. And second, the need to have particular regard to the background of any Security Council resolution, both the overall political background and the background of related Council action. At the end of the article, I suggested certain conclusions. With the caution of uh, a government lawyer, as I then was, I termed these tentative, and they were as follows. The aim of interpretation should be to give effect to the intention of the Council, as expressed by the words used by the Council, in the light of the surrounding circumstances. Second. The interpreter will, even if this is not expressly stated, seek to apply the general principles of interpretation as they have been elaborated in relation to treaties. Third, caution is required. SCRs are not treaties, indeed the differences are very great. SCRs are not necessarily all of the same nature. They must be interpreted in the context of the United Nations Charter. Indeed, it becomes highly artificial and to some extent is simply not possible to seek to apply all of the Vienna Convention rules, mutatis mutandis, to resolutions. And fourthly, in the case of Security Council resolutions, given their essentially political nature and the way they are drafted, the circumstances of the adoption of the resolution and such preparatory work as exists may often be of greater significance than in the case of treaties. 
the Vienna Convention distinction between the general rule and supplementary means has even less significance than in the case of treaties. And in general, less importance should be attached to the minutiae of language. The Council does not draft that carefully. And there's considerable scope for authentic interpretation by the Council itself. I'd like to dispel what I refer to as three myths about Chapter 7 of the Charter. Chapter 7 is the chapter under which uh, most binding Security Council resolutions are adopted. Uh, first, it is not the case that every resolution adopted under Chapter 7 is thereby legally binding, though the converse may be true. A resolution not adopted under Chapter 7 will, in any event generally, not be legally binding. Second, it is not the case that when the Council acts under Chapter 7, this invariably, or even commonly, involves or implies the use of force. The taking or authorising of armed force is only one of a range of measures under Chapter 7, including investigations, recommendations, economic sanctions, establishing ad hoc tribunals and administering territory. Third, the fact that a resolution adopted under Chapter 7 is mandatory, that is to say imposes legal obligations, does not mean that states are entitled to use force to enforce the resolution, any more than the fact that a state is in breach of a treaty means that force can be used against it. As Rosalind Higgins wrote in 1993, there is no entitlement in the hands of individual members of the United Nations to enforce prior resolutions by the use of force. Only if they are authorised by the Council to use force for that purpose may states do so. <clears throat> There's one important practical point to make concerning the drafting of SCRs. There is no equivalent in New York of the legislative draftsman to be found in national systems, or indeed in the legal linguistic review that happens in the institutions of the European Union in Brussels. Lawyers from the UN Secretariat are rarely involved in the drafting of resolutions. Legal input is left entirely to the members of the Security Council, including those with lawyers on their delegations, to do the best they can often under severe time and even political pressure. The time pressure may be intense. SCRs may be drafted in a matter of hours and often do not go through the days and weeks of scrutiny like national legislation or treaties. And insofar as they are subjected to detailed consideration, this may often lead to ambiguity inherent in compromise rather than to clarity. In addition, there are no agreed rules or practices for drafting SCRs. While some drafting practices may be discerned, they change over time as people leave the Council. Regrettably, the Council is often inconsistent in its use of language. 
A former colleague of mine at the Foreign Office, Elizabeth Wilmshurst, wrote in relation to the question of the binding nature of resolutions, the political difficulties of negotiating council resolutions are sometimes severe, but the council does not have freedom to use a form of words which departs significantly from the charter and from its practice, and yet have the expectation that states will accept it as legally binding. Such resolutions raise doubts as to whether they are mandatory and damage both the credibility of the council and its ability to secure state compliance. An important and useful study of, in 2008 by the New York-based body Security Council Report reached a similar conclusion. They said, as a matter of policy, the clearer the language adopted, the better the prospects for effectiveness and credibility of council decisions. Clarity may not be possible on every occasion, but it seems critical that every effort be made to avoid decisions that only prolong the problem rather than solve it. I fully share that opinion. It's perhaps a lawyer's opinion rather than that of the diplomat or politician wanting to get a result on the day. I might mention in passing that uh, this New York-based body, Security Council Report, has a most useful website uh, available free of charge for anyone interested in keeping up to date with developments in the Security Council. One of the most important issues in relation to Security Council resolutions is whether they are legally binding. You'd have thought this would be a relatively simple matter, but it's not always the case, largely for political reasons. As you recall, Article 25 of the Charter provides that the members of the United Nations agree to accept and carry out the decisions of the Security Council in accordance with the Charter. I suggest that what you need to look for are three elements. Firstly, a determination by the Council under Article 39 of the Charter of the existence of a threat to the peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression. Second, evidence that the Council is indeed acting under Chapter 7. And third, that the Council has taken a decision within the meaning of Article 25. I make these suggestions rather tentatively because at the end of the day there are no hard and fast rules. There are only elements that give greater or lesser clarity. But as I've just said, clarity is important, especially when legal obligations are at issue and when courts may be involved. Building up a consistent and transparent practice has considerable merit. You may discern in what I've been saying the complaints of a lawyer who's often been forced to agree to language which was far from clear for the sake of political agreement. There are no rules laid down in the Charter for the interpretation of Security Council resolutions. 
As we've seen, the rules laid down in the two Vienna Conventions on the law of treaties apply in terms only to treaties. So in the absence of any treaty provisions, where do we look for the rules applicable to the interpretation of resolutions? The usual places, state practice, case law and writings. State practice is relatively sparse. States rarely explain publicly and in depth their approach to the interpretation of resolutions though the debate on the meaning of 1441 on Iraq is something of an exception. Case law is potentially a more fruitful field. The judgments of both domestic and international courts ought to shed useful light on the matter, but again they are rarely explicit on the methods employed and they do not go into details. And there is still, in my view, not much to be gleaned from the few writings there have been on the subject of interpreting Security Council resolutions. But my brief review of all these sources tends to support the general proposition that one should take the Vienna Convention rules as a starting point, but not follow them slavishly. For example, in his recent Lauterpacht Memorial Lectures entitled the United Nations Secretariat and the Use of Force, Ralph Zacklin, former Deputy Legal Counsel of the UN, refers to employing interpretative techniques borrowed from treaty law for the interpretation of resolutions. That may indicate the broad approach of UN Secretariat lawyers. In its recent study, to which I've just referred, the New York-based Security Council report said the following. The key point is that the analysis of the nature of council resolutions often needs to take into account not just the text or the general circumstances at the adoption, but also the possibility that this assessment may be conclusively determined only from subsequent council deliberations. In some cases, then, the possible possibility of evolution in the council's understanding of its own decisions is critical. There's an interesting quasi-judicial consideration of the matter in a recent uh, decision by the Human Rights Committee under the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. In its views in the communication Sayadi against Belgium, given on the 22nd of October last year, 2008, the committee considered a challenge on human rights grounds to Belgium's domestic implementation of Security Council sanctions. One member of the committee, the British member, uh, Sir Nigel Rodley, made some interesting remarks though these were, I think, obiter and lex ferenda, to use two Latin expressions. He accepted that if there were a conflict between a state's obligations under the covenant and its obligations to give effect to the decisions of the Security Council binding under Article 25, Article 103 of the Charter 
would resolve the conflict in favour of the council decisions. Article 103, you'll recall, is the article that provides that in the event of a conflict between obligations of members of the UN under the Charter and their obligations under any other agreement, their obligations under the Charter prevail. But Rodley went on to suggest four criteria that should be applied for interpreting Security Council resolutions to determine whether indeed there is a conflict. While not going so far as to say, as some have done, that the Council cannot act in a way that requires disrespect for human rights. Rodley did say that the Charter wording strongly suggests that the first interpretation criteria is that there should be a presumption that the Security Council did not intend that actions taken pursuant to its resolutions should violate human rights. A second criterion was that there should be a presumption that in any event there was no intention that a norm of Juskogen should be violated. Third, rights that were not derogable under human rights treaties in times of grave emergency should be presumed not to be intended to be violated. And fourth, even in the case of derogable rights, any departures would be conditioned by the principles of necessity and proportionality. This is a very original attempt to reconcile the need for an effective collective security system, something recognised, for example, by the European Court of Human Rights in the Berami case, and the importance of upholding human rights even in times of grave public emergency. But I am not entirely convinced by Rodley's proposed presumptions. Moreover, he gives no indication as to what it would take to rebut his presumptions. In particular, his first suggestion that there should be a presumption that the Security Council did not intend that actions taken pursuant to its resolution should violate human rights seems to go too far. It would ignore the fact that by definition the Council is acting in an emergency situation where there is a threat to the peace, a breach of the peace, or an act of aggression. Depending what it would take to rebut it, this first presumption could deprive Article 103, a cornerstone of the Charter, of much of its practical impact. I could say the same about the other uh, presumptions he's proposed. I'd like at this point uh, but I don't have much time to look at one or two case studies. However, one of the difficulties in attempting a case study of interpretation is the lack of available information. Most of the negotiating and drafting goes on behind closed doors and rarely comes to light. Sometimes the memoirs of those involved can be interesting, but even then you have to remember that they may give a partial view. I was going to refer to an interesting example cited by Sir David Hannay in a recent book elegantly entitled New World Disorder, 
Uh, Hane was the UK's permanent representative in New York at the time that I was there, and he describes the negotiation of a particular resolution, 672, which was adopted unanimously in 1990 following the shootings at the Harama Sharif in Jerusalem. Uh, one paragraph of that resolution read, the Security Council condemns especially the acts of violence committed by the Israeli security forces. In the next paragraph, the Council referred to the Fourth Geneva Convention, which is applicable to all the territories occupied by Israel since 1967. Hane, who was Council President when the resolution was adopted, recounts how the Americans insisted that the Council should also condemn Palestinian use of violence, but eventually they settled for the word especially. You just wouldn't know that unless you were there, that the word especially had that connotation. And he further describes American opposition to referring expressly to East Jerusalem as part of the occupied territories. The solution here, he says, was not to refer to East Jerusalem in the text of the resolution, but for him as council president to respond at a public meeting of the council to a question from one of the representatives by stating that it was indeed the council's view that East Jerusalem was part of the territories occupied by Israel in 1967. What this illustrates is the importance of understanding the negotiating dynamics leading to a resolution and it's also a vivid illustration of the importance, on some occasions, of what's said during the council meetings at which resolutions are adopted. I can't finish, I suppose, without referring to the uh, use of force against Iraq in 2003. This was perhaps the most critical situation so far in which the interpretation of Security Council resolutions assumed great importance. But it would not be appropriate for me on this occasion to express any view of the matter, uh, though much has entered the public domain. The whole question of the legality of the use of force against Iraq turns solely on whether it had been authorised by the Security Council. In other words, it depended on the interpretation of a series of Security Council resolutions. It's perfectly clear that the Security Council may authorise the use of force. Notwithstanding the views of certain academics, the sole question in this case was whether it had done so. And I can't do any more than refer to the various published views, the US and Australian government, sorry, the UK and Australian governments, as well as the Russian government, published their official views on the legal position on the interpretation of the Security Council resolutions. In the case of the UK, even detailed internal legal advice became public. Uh, the fullest statement was the Attorney General's advice of the 7th of March 2003, classified secret, but which was eventually published in full by the government. The US government's position was given in what I think is an authoritative article published in the American Journal by the then legal advisor to the State Department.
As I've said, I won't go into details, but I would refer you to these published documents, which illustrate many of the points of importance concerning the interpretation of Security Council resolutions. In conclusion, I just recall a number of differences between Security Council resolutions and treaties, which I identified earlier, particularly in my 1999 article. These include the following. Given the way resolutions are drafted, less reliance can be placed upon the preambular language of SCRs as a tool for operating for interpreting the operative part. Security Council resolutions are often not self-contained, but they refer to and incorporate by reference other documents, reports of the Secretary-General, for example. Another point is that Security Council resolutions are often part of a series and can only be understood as such. Next, there are no parties to a resolution, only the Council which adopts them, and the various references in the Vienna Convention rules to parties to a treaty cannot easily be applied in the context of a resolution. As I've said, given the way resolutions are drafted, and that for the most part they are intended as political documents, you should not expect the language to be uh, crafted with the same care and attention as in the case of a treaty. Under the Vienna Convention, you have to take into account, together with context, any relevant rules of international law applicable in the relations between the parties. Quite apart from the fact there are no parties, the impact of other rules of international law may well be reduced as a result of the application of Article 103 of the Charter. And as I've said, the Vienna Convention's distinction between the general rule in Article 31 and supplementary means in Article 32 is likely to be even less important in practice in the case of resolutions than in the case of treaties. Even if we do not go as far as Michael Byers, who said, you'll recall, that the future shape of the international legal system will depend, above all, on how we interpret Security Council resolutions, it is the case that with a very active Security Council, questions of interpretation have become more important and more frequent over the last few years. There is more authority in the shape of case law and writings than 10 years ago, but not as much as one might expect. And there is still no authoritative statement of the applicable rules of interpretation. If the Attorney General were to write that one sentence letter today, I would be not much further forward in having an answer to it. But I think I would now be prepared to remove the word tentative before the conclusions in my earlier article, and not just because I'm no longer a government lawyer. Thank you very much. <laughs>